Lord willing, I will begin, uh, I, I teach the next quarter, let me put it that way. This is kind of some, somewhat of an introduction of what I'm going to do in that quarter. Next week, as you might well expect, the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, we have singing, not a class. And so it'll be two weeks before we come back again to pick up where we're going to leave off this time. Picture with me, if you will, if you were getting ready to build a house, you want to find the plans, you want the floor plans, you want the blueprint, you want to have that plan perfected in your mind in, in, so you can show it to others as you make that plan. You wouldn't begin to build a house just guessing what we're going to do here in this next room or what are, we going to, are we going to put another room on. You want that plan. It's interesting to me as I think about that, God had a plan as well. A plan prior to the beginning of the world. There's a, one of my favorite verses is found in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5 where he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. When the fullness, we would say probably when the time is complete, when everything's ready, we'll do this. God says when all of his plans have worked out to the point that he's ready to send his son, he sent Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You re do you realize when you think about that for a moment what God's plan must have been like? What we can understand concerning that plan is the simple fact that God knew. God's all-knowing. No question about that. We can't really comprehend, we can't really fully assimilate that in our mind, but He's all-knowing. He knew before he created the world, that man was going to sin. He knew when he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that they were going to sin. I don't know how long it took them. We've studied that sin off and on for years, but God knew about it. He knew that he was going to have to provide a way for the forgiveness of sin for the redemption of mankind when they sin. We can understand that as part of his plan. Part of that plan that he's making is what I want to study during this next quarter. That's the church. Where did that fit in God's plan? How was he using that idea as one of the means of salvation, not exclusively, Christ had to die for our sins, as we were told a moment ago. But the church has a great message there for us as well. There are a number of expressions given in the Bible that explain that time essence, when the fullness of time has come. 
There was a great plan from the beginning. We can understand that, the way God put it. That plan was God's offering of salvation to a lost and dying world. In Mark 1 and verse 15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time's fulfilled for the kingdom. Now you and I know, at least I, I, I'm using that as a suggestion, I think we do, that the church is the literal kingdom of Christ. You remember back in Matthew at chapter 16 when he'd asked them, who do men say that I, the son of man am? And they gave him several different options. And he said, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, Blessed are thou, Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father who's in heaven. He said that in another place. He really told him there that I'm going to build my church upon this rock. The world today has confused that a little bit because Peter is the Greek word for a pebble, a small rock. Jesus is not building the church on a small pebble. He's building the church on a solid rock. You know as well as I that Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount spoke of two men who built houses. One of them built a house on a, on a rock. And the winds came and the storms blew and the rains fell and beat upon the house and it fell not because it found it on a rock. But the second man built his house on the sand. Those same things happened to it, and it fell because it was founded on the sand, not on a solid foundation. If you're going to build a house, the first thing you do is get the plans together. The second thing you do when you begin building is to build the foundation. If you don't start from that, the house is not going to stand long. And we can understand that in our lifetime. Jesus said in Matthew 26 and verse 18, My time is at hand. And he wrote, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 6, He who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus is going to be testified for all. That's, he, he was for us. If you've heard the gospel preached, if you've read that in the, in the New Testament, you know that testifies to us of Jesus, of what he's done, the opportunity he's given us for salvation. But uh, uh, Titus 1, verses 2 and 3, Paul wrote, In hope of eternal life, with which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, and has in due time manifested his word through preaching. You see, all of these are saying simply this, that God, prior to bringing the world into existence, planned the salvation of mankind. Planned what He was going to do in order to make that salvation possible. Now it's evident, in my, in my thinking, that's a great plan. And we know if you have a plan, a plan's only good if you work it according to that plan. And God has done that through the ages. I, I want us to look at that plan. 
And I want us to do that this next quarter. I, I want us to really th think of what the real nature of the church is. I want us to look at the fulfillment of the plan of God, especially as we see it in the church. You see, under the old law, there were priests who presided over the worship and Jewish system. But they, I, I know that you are aware of the fact that the New Testament speaks of you and I being priests. We being saints. Not someone who has already passed away whom everybody has to vote on and select him as a, as a saint. No. Those who have obeyed the gospel are saints. As long as we are, that means we're holy. Our sins are washed away. We're pure, clean in Christ Jesus. I want to look at the assembly of the church too during this time. I want us to see why do we assemble? Why do we assemble on the first day of the week? And we'll look at the, the reasons for all of these things. Why, why was it on the first day of the week? Could there have been some other day that they could have gathered together as well? You know, obviously there was. Obviously they gathered together on other days of the week as we do on Wednesday night. But that's, the church met on the first day of the week. And what's included in that worship when they met? We can easily name five things just very quickly that the New Testament tells us that the, the Christ, early Christians did. They sang. They prayed. They enjoyed the Lord's Supper. They gave of their means. And they were taught or Preach to. That's, the, that's what makes the worship. Worship is not the preaching. It's not the preacher. It's not the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. Worship is the commitment of yourself to God. In the way that he has specified. There's a great fellowship in the church. And I... I love more than anything else the, the, the fellowship of the church. At least there should be. And I want to look at that and, and talk about our singing. I'd I love to sing. Not that I can very well. There are a lot of people who have great voices in singing. I'm not one of those. But the Bible doesn't say you have to sing with a great voice. We're to speak to one another. I, I, I can do that. But speak to one another in the songs that we sing, and we'll be talking about that to a great extent when we get to that point. We'll talk about the Lord's Supper as well. We're to know about the, what, what are we to know about the leadership of the New Testament church? Can we go back to the New Testament and restore that identical church that we can read about? That's our hope. That's our wish. That's what we want to do. We want to go back and, and be that New Testament church in practice today. Now, the basis of this study, first of all, is the Bible. The simple fact that the Bible is the Word of God. It is the written Word of God. You've heard me say several times that 
I believe the Bible to be verbally, the verbally inspired Word of God. No question about that. I believe it has the answers to all questions of a religious nature. Tells us the answer to those questions. The inspired Word of God is, is the answer for that. And as it is the Word of God, it is a definite pattern for us to follow. I want you to notice, first of all, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Hebrews says, He has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. Now think about that for a moment. He also made the worlds. But first of all, he came because He was interested in us, and He told us that we know God's Word through what He's told us. In another passage, and I hope that print is large enough for you to read, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, the writer says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. The writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, look, We've been given a precious gift. We've been given the Word of God. We've been given that which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We've been given that which is God's Word. It's been attested to. And if we want to compare it back to the Old Testament when every disobedience received a just recompense of reward, what about us? If at that time we neglect our salvation, if we drift away, if we let things slip. Now, when you talk about drift away, you understand what he's saying. Drift away doesn't happen in just one instant. Something that slowly evolves. It's not because we intended to drift away. It's not because we intended to leave our salvation but our minds and our ways were centered on something else. And we all knew exactly what we're talking about. God reveals His truth and Jesus reveals His Father. God's a source of authority. No question about that. He's the creator of all. And he spoke this world into existence. I, I, I can't understand that. I believe it. I'm convinced that's true, that he spoke this world into existence. And then I understand the fact that he also speaks in revelation to us. The word is the standard of truth. It's authoritative. And at one time he spoke through the prophets. 
and who recorded the Old Testament, but now he speaks to human beings through his Son. That's important that we stop and think about that for a moment. Jesus is the Son of God. And in Hebrews, also when Jesus was baptized by John, do you remember what he said, what happened? When he came up out of the water, the Spirit descended like a dove and lighted upon him, and a voice from heaven spoke, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. God revealed through the Son. Jesus revealed by the Father. Again, Peter, you remember when Peter, James, and John were taken in Matthew chapter 17 up into a mountain and Jesus was transfigured before them? And suddenly there appeared two men with him, Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't know how Peter and John knew Moses and Elijah. Did they hear Jesus calling them by name? Did they overhear the conversation enough that they would know, identify who these two were? I don't know. But I know good old Peter. He said, Lord, it's great for us to be here. Let's just build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. You know what happened next? A voice spoke out of a cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Can you imagine what's going on? Jesus even made the statement that all authority is given unto me, both in heaven and on earth. Granted to him. And then the interesting thing immediately after that authority, saying that all authority, that doesn't leave any out now. That's all authority, both in heaven and on earth. Jesus has it all. And then he tells us and his disciples there at that time to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He had the authority to do that. And what he's asking us to do is we go into, into heaven and all the world and, and, and preach the gospel. We have to receive, recognize that Jesus received that authority from God. He said in John chapter 7 and verse 16, My teaching's not mine, but it's him who sent me. Also in, in John chapter 12 and verse 49, he says, For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. You remember in the book of Genesis about the creation? Now near the end, God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let us if I understand the English language, that's a, a plural word. We know that at that point, man hadn't been created. 
the world had been spoken into existence, but no creature like man was on it. Who could us be include? Jesus, the Son of God, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. All of them involved. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus made all things. Jesus was there in creation. He was used in, in that idea as well. God's revelation through His Son is complete. I want to stress that idea. The law indeed was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1, 17. Jesus said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son cho chooses to reveal Him. Matthew 11 and verse 27. Against those who wanted to treat Jesus as one among other spiritual beings and authorities. And we have many today in our world that does that. Many so-called religious groups are saying Jesus was not the Son of God. And they go to great lengths in trying to explain some way, some way about it. But Jesus was the Son of God, and it was through Him. Now all things have been handed over to me, He said, by the Father. Only way we can know it is through those whom Jesus Himself reveals, chooses to reveal, and He's revealed it through this Word. We make the choice by reading this word and obeying this word and applying what he's said in, that, in this word to our lives. You see, I, those who wanted to treat Jesus that way have not understood what the Bible says. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 18 and 19, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, not that he was the first ever raised from the dead, he wasn't. But being the firstborn means that he has all that authority, all that priority, all that, that honor. That it was his doing. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have the first place in everything. Why give him first place? Because he is the firstborn from the dead. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1, 18 and 19. Therefore God placed him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is a name not only in this age but in the age to come. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21. But now I want you to think about the apostles' authority. Those to whom Jesus chose to reveal the Father were his closest disciples. They attested to his words and his deeds. Jesus promised them a, a, an interesting promise, and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bound in heaven, be bound in heaven, on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Can you think of that for a moment? 
What kind of authority is that that he's passing on to the apostles? The apostles who had the opportunity to preach that first gospel sermon. I know we have Peter's sermon recorded, but we know he stood up with the eleven. So eleven others were preaching and teaching. If you can picture a, a scene where hundreds or maybe thousands of people were gathered at the temple in Jerusalem on that special day. And when they, they didn't have microphones. They didn't have loudspeaker systems so they could get the message out to other people. They separated into various ways and they preached the same sermon. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. What a message it was too. And more, more comprehensively, Jesus said, As the Father sent me, so I send you. The Father sent him into this world to make available to mankind a solution to their sin problem. The apostles went out and traveled throughout the known world at that time, just about, preaching the gospel. Giving man the known solution to the sin problem, that it was through Jesus Christ. You see, the, Jesus sent out the 70 disciples, if you remember what had, had, had taken place. And he equipped them with his authority. And he says, said to them, whoever listens to you, listens to me. And whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, will be rejected by God. Rejects the one who sent me. Luke 10, 16. The twelve disciples declared... Very truly, very truly I tell you, whoever receives one whom I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. John chapter 13 and verse 20. On the basis of this particular idea, I want you to understand the truth of what we have written before us today. It is the Word of God. When we hear the apostles, we hear Christ. When we hear the message of this Word, the message that is identical with this Word, that comes from this Word, when we hear that, you've heard Christ. You've heard the message that He wanted. And unless we have apostolic authority for a practice, we don't have God's authority for it. We don't have apostolic authority for various gifts of the Spirit because they were temporary, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When the, 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 the law was come, then that would be done away with. It be, wouldn't be needed anymore. You see, God also was bearing witness with both signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His will. But He said, as we think about the source of inspiration, He said, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. He'll bring to your remembrance all things that I said about you, chapter, uh, John chapter 14 and verse 26. And then he added, whoever, however, when he, 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 the spirit of truth has come, he'll guide you into all truth. He's going to guide you into all truth. But he will not speak by his own authority. But whatever he hears, he'll speak. And he will tell you things to come. Now that's John, we're told, verse, chapter 16, verses 13 on down through 15 that I've read to you. Spirit has nothing to teach but what Jesus taught. He's not operating on his own will, as Jesus told us plainly. His words are the same as Jesus' words. His words are, are carrying the same power, the same authority, the same opportunity that Jesus' words did. Spirit's work is to glorify Christ, not himself. Not the messenger. Not an experience. I want you to know something. The preacher who stands before you and preaches, if he's preaching the word of truth, is not exalting himself. He's exalting the word of God. He's exalting the power of that word. It does that comes by communicating the truth. A truth that's revealed by Jesus. It's not an experience that we're going to feel. It's not some better feel, felt emotion than something else. It's by the Word of God. It's by understanding what Jesus said. The Spirit performed His work in regard to salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Rather lengthy little reading, but read with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering. The things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which the angels desired to look into wasn't spoken to the angels. It was spoken to mankind. Spoken to us who have obeyed the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, who have committed our lives to Him. That revelation is complete. I want you to notice something else. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to godliness through the knowledge of Him, has called us to glory, who's not, who, who has given us, to us, did you notice that little word that comes next? All, A-L-L. Nothing omitted that should be there. 
Nothing glorified that should not be. It's all that pertain to life and godliness. All things, not omitting anything. When we read the Word of God, we read exactly what He wants us to know. Nothing more is to be revealed later. What the Spirit delivered to the original apostles, we have that. Jude challenges his, his readers to defend the faith. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which once was for all was delivered to the saints. Which was once for all delivered to the saints. Not going to be anymore. You might be able to find those, some books today written supposedly to replace the Bible or to add something to it or to change something about it or to, to give you some what they consider different authority. No. Jude says that everything that is necessary, everything that is wanted, it was once for all delivered to the saints. Not going to be any of it. We must believe the Bible. Now, Jude, in that challenge, challenges us not only to recognize the fact that the, 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 the Scripture's complete. Don't expect any more. He also challenged us in that passage to contend for the faith. In this context, that word contend means to defend, to stand, with the faith. That faith that had been once for all delivered to the saints. Be sure and stand with that. If God, the Creator, is almighty, and the world and the Word declare that He is, He'll have no trouble revealing the faith to all those who will accept it. What a challenge. I want you to remember God's written Word. You remember the verse that I read a moment ago from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. A message that a, a great salvation was first delivered orally, spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed by those who heard Him. And those who were eyewitnesses. I, maybe I should say eye and ear witnesses. They heard Him. They saw Him. When we understand that, we, they're witnesses. And those associated with them, with them committed that to writing. Apostolic authority continues through that written word. The same message was delivered by word of mouth and then writing Paul commanded. When he said, brethren, stand fast. Hold the traditions which you were taught. Hold those traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Whether it was by written words or spoken words. Be sure you understand what the Bible has to say. Peter, quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, talks about the living and enduring word of God. And he again quotes it in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 24. 
when he says that all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. Grass withers and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. God's word is going to endure. One of the greatest miracles we can see today is the protection of this book down through the ages. How did God protect His Word? Through all the things that happened through all the ages past, from the first century to the 20th century, many, many places would destroy the Bible if they found it. Many places, many nations in our world today would destroy the Bible if they found it and imprison the person who owned it. We have to be aware of that. God's great word was protected by him. It was his word. Man's not going to destroy it. We know that. And we recognize the fact that the simple fact is, all flesh is as grass, it withers, and, and its glory is going to pass away, and the flower falls away. Even though the Word of God is going to endure forever, our physical body is not going to endure forever. It's going to be like that grass that's just for a little while. The written Word is a reminder of what we've been taught orally. Peter tells us, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. How did he do it? We have it in First and Second Peter in this book. He's reminding them. He's encouraging them. He's uh, wanting them to be reminded as long as he's here until his decease, but he's leaving behind Something you and I can do. Today we have access to the words of Christ and His apostles only through the written word collected in the Bible. But how did it come? How did it come? God's word. The guidance of the Holy Spirit Jesus promised to His disciples in preserving His teachings. We call that inspiration. Inspiration functions to communicate with accuracy and sufficiency the authoritative words delivered by the Lord and His representatives. Apostolic writers spoke of the inspiration of the spoken word of the prophets and the written word of the scripture that they had received. We know those scriptures. We know and understand those that I've just been talking about as the Old Testament. Peter writes in Second Peter, or rather in First Peter 20 and 21, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Think of what he's saying. 
And think of our world today and those who are prophesying about the end time, the coming of the Lord. Prophesying about various other things that are happening and how, you know, they've tried many, many ways to get their ideas into the world. But the Word of God came not by man, not by man's words, not by man's inspiration, but the Holy Spirit inspired and brought to mind those words. And Paul writes to Timothy, and he says and from that from a childhood, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now with that passage, along with its setting, it's showing us the purposes of inspiration. It places the Jewish scriptures, the, what we call the Old Testament, places, places that alongside the New Testament. The same inspiration. Although revelation and inspiration are, are related, they're not the same. Revelation is, is both broader and narrower than inspiration. Broader because God reveals Himself in creation, nature, saving acts in Exodus, the resurrection of Christ, it's narrower because an inspired writer might record material that was not revealed to him and make a use of material not itself inspired. Paul did that, if you remember, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 when he quoted from their prophets. He did it again in Acts chapter 23, verse 25 through 30 where he quoted from their prophets not from the writings of the inspiration, not from the Old Testament, not from God's Word, but from what somebody else said. But he applies inspiration to those words, whether spoken or written. Writings of the New Testament record the revelation made by God through Christ and passed on by His disciples and their associates. Interpret that revelation. Apply it to the lives of those who received it. Scripture, then, is the written form of, of the message of salvation. It showed the meaning of what God had done through Christ and made possible the preserving of the revelation in Christ. Inspiration, in other words, guarantees the written records. And it'll carry out the purposes for which they were tended intended. The doctrine of inspiration provides an assurance that the divine authority stands behind the words of the Scripture. We should be careful that our understanding of inspiration accords with the characteristics of the documents and is accepted as inspired and does not impose a preconceived idea on them. God speaks to human beings today through the words of His Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit. For that reason, the Bible matters greatly.
We need to study it to find out exactly what God wants us to do. We need to study it to find out exactly what the apostles were, their practice was in that first century. The very basis, the foundation of our study in this next quarter is going to be based upon what the scripture says. Be with us at that time. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you that you've made possible for us salvation through Christ. That the great plan that you planned before the world was ever created made possible the coming of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, his church, and the provided salvation for us today. We're thankful for that, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.